Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, this is Mike Lewis with the Fanalytics Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about Major League Baseball. We're going to do a... Um, a Major League Baseball season preview. Uh, opening day is uh, just a couple of weeks ahead uh, is of the, the taping of this one with um, baseball kicking off on March 28th, which is a relatively early start. What we want to do in today's podcast is talk about baseball fandom, okay? And so there's going to be a bunch of moving pieces to this. Um, but what I want to start with and the reason I want to start with it is because I kind of view this as the fundamentals of thinking about fandom. And it's probably going to seem a little bit strange to folks that follow baseball or sports and sports economics. When I think of the foundation of fandom across all leagues is the collective bargaining agreement. Okay, Because I think, you know, essentially games have rules, sports have rules. The collective bargaining agreement establishes the rules by which the leagues operate. And how the leagues operate tends to be highly influential in terms of how fans respond. So joining me today to start the podcast, to lay the groundwork for thinking about fans going into the 2019 season, is my favorite economist, Tom Smith. Oh, thank you. Very nice of you to say that. I appreciate being your favorite economist. Low bar. I know. Well, it's, you don't know. Yeah, you know lots of economists. Uh, you I, I know, do. So, um, I do. And it's, um, it's kind of an interesting thing, right? So... An economist that can talk sports, though, is a little bit of an unusual... Uh, yeah, there's a couple of us out here. Yeah, there's a couple. So, Tom, I know you follow CBAs, collective bargaining agreements. When was the last CBA? Um, I want to say it was about 2016 with the next one in 2021 or 2022. Does that sound about right? That sounds okay. about right. Okay. So, but So these things tend to go in um, in cycles, right? I mean, well, not cycles, but... As soon as one is negotiated, it, it goes into place, and then we wait for the second one. Baseball, I think, was historically known for having the most contentious CBA negotiations, right? I think there was a period where there was a lockout or strike on every CBA negotiation for, I mean, we're going back a ways here, but uh, I want to say there were like three or four of those in a row where they had a labor stoppage of some form, right? Yeah, I mean, we've and they'd lost the whole season, right? And it's just... Or most of a whole season, so um, yeah, there was some. There's some been a lot of contention. The way that I think about CBAs, and it was it's nice to hear you talk about it from a different perspective. You're thinking about fandom. You're thinking about how fans interact with the game, the way that the game establishes itself, the rules that it puts in place, um, really does set up a foundation for how fans interact with the players, how fans interact with mm-hmm. the game. I think about the CBA as establishing sets of rights. So when you think about um, rights, like property rights, you have players and you have the teams, the franchises, and the collective bargaining agreement, from my perspective, establishes who owns what rights at what time. So when you're a player and you come into the league, there's a period of time under which the team owns your rights so they collect more of your rents and then at some point that transitions from being the team owns your rights to you own your own rights 
and then you sell those rights to another team and you establish an individual contract with okay. that team. And so I think about the collective bargaining agreement as really a set of paths and rules that navigate how the rights are distributed between different entities, the players, the franchises, different franchises between themselves and how they negotiate those rights. Well, I think that's fair. I think that's the classic way of looking at it, right? It's a, I mean, it's a labor agreement. It's, that's the way, that, I mean, that's the classic way I like, I like to look at it, yes. Okay, and so, you know, going way back in history to Charlie Finley with the, well, I guess we could even go a little bit farther back to, what was the gentleman's name, Kurt Flood? That's right, that's right. What was the name of the rule? The, um, well, essentially, Kurt Flood sued... Major League Baseball reserve clause. to remove the reserve clause so he had rights to play where he wanted, right? That's right. And so, and it was it was actually an arbitrator, um, Sites, who basically then ruled that after Kurt Flood, about two different um, pitchers, um, Nezer Smith being one of them, that, that they were allowed to essentially become free agents. When we think about the, the term free agency, and we think about this as as being, you know, as part of baseball or football or what have you for a long period of time. It's just really not the case. Once upon a time, with the reserve clause in place, you there was no free agency. You always had, had your rights taken away from you as a player um, that went, that sort of reverted back to the team. You know, so let's let's stay there just for a second, because it's, it's an interesting way to look at it um, in terms of rights. And I think I think it's a fair way to look at it. As a fan... You know, what What are fans like? You know, fans, the ideal situation, a player that comes up through a farm system, plays for that team, plays their entire career with that team, and the team has the ability to build itself, mm-hmm. right? One, one way of viewing is sort of moving towards giving the players autonomy, control over their careers, is you're eliminating the team's abilities to build themselves, right? Or you're reducing it, you're constraining it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think the teams like that. I mean, we're we're broadcasting here from Atlanta. Well, they need, and they the, need an incentive to invest in that, right? They do, they do, and so and I so, but I do think that fans like that idea. We're Chipper Jones is an excellent example of that, right? So Chipper Jones started with the Braves in their farm system, and you know he won a championship as a rookie, and then he played his entire career with Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something very attractive to that sort of longevity with the same team from a fan perspective. Um, But I also think that fans like the idea of being able to go grab, um, you know, a hotshot veteran if it helps them improve the team. Well, the the example I brought up before I correct myself and went to Kurt Flood was Charlie Finley in the Oakland Athletics. And I think that's actually the first memory I have of these CBA issues impacting fans or impacting fan preferences. So... You know, the, the basic story is that Charlie Finley is the uh, owner of the Oakland A's, the Oakland Athletics, and Oakland Athletics in the early 70s have a lot of talent. They've got Reggie Jackson, Vita Blue, Catfish Hunter. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, I might be getting some of the details wrong here, but, you know, the basically Charlie Finley was trying to uh, sell these guys to the New York Yankees. Right. Okay. Um, so he got something out of having these players rather than having them just be able to hit free agency, right? So right. as the CBA changes, free agency comes in. Now the owners start to react, and he's trying to sell the players so he gets some return on 
probably what he viewed as his investment into those guys. Of course, of course, and it is right. I mean, so when when a team then trains a player, they're essentially putting an investment in. They're, they're investing in that player's human capital, but the human capital goes with the person. Okay. They, so you know, so if you if you have a, somebody who comes up in your system and you give them good hitting instruction or you give them good you know on field situational awareness or what have you. Then they go to another team. You, you don't collect any of those rents. The player is collecting all of them. And so you feel, wait a minute, I need a return on my investment. Yeah. There's a reason why you'd want to sell the player to get you know, draft picks or mm-hmm. somebody in a farm system so that you could then get a return on your investment. Yeah. Well, and like I said, I'm sympathetic to the notion that the – I'm going to play devil's advocate here okay. for a little bit. This idea that, well, the, you know, the players, it's the player's skill set, right? It's their, their resources, so they should be able to – sell it on the on the on the free market right the owners don't have a free market though right i mean you're competing you're in a league right right and so one of the things that's unique about american sports and baseball you know as one of those sports is that um well in remember the the part of the story was that finley was selling the guys to the yankees right yankees operate in the biggest market so they've got the most potential that's right can the oakland athletics just move to new york uh, no, actually, under so the baseball is the only um, sports league that it currently has what's called a monopoly position. So there was a, a lawsuit, um, federal versus uh, Major League Baseball, because uh, Major League Baseball was buying up uh, federal's baseball teams and closing them. And um, so the Supreme Court identified that baseball is neither um, – it's not commerce and it's not interstate. So since it's not interstate or commerce, it doesn't violate the interstate commerce clause so that it has a monopoly exemption. As a result of the monopoly exemption... I'm going to regret asking this question. How is it not commerce? It's, it, well, so every, every, um, every Supreme Court case that has looked at other sports, football, baseball, what have you, has all identified that that original decision by the Supreme Court for baseball is flawed. But they, what they've done is they've punted it to Congress, and they've said, okay, if you want to, if you want to write a law that says that baseball no longer has a monopoly exemption, you go right ahead. But given the fact that this yeah. one Supreme Court said it's not interstate commerce, now in fact it is interstate commerce. So what happens is that baseball has this monopoly exemption. The Oakland Athletics cannot move to New let me, York. Let me put a pin in this just for a second for something yeah, I want yeah. to come back later. Accidents of history. That's exactly okay. what this is exactly what we're talking about. Accidents of history that were driven by some sort of cultural norms at the time echo throughout, you know, the decades after. You better believe it. So truth is that in baseball you are not allowed to move wherever you want. You have to get approval from the league. This is different than every other league. In football and basketball, teams can move and Al Davis took took the NFL to court, and the court said, you can't keep this guy from moving from uh, Oakland to L.A. and then back to Oakland to Vegas. I mean, you can move wherever you want. And so, so well, in baseball— some, With some difficulty. Though. I mean, compared to, compared to, let's say, Europe, where, you know, seven EPL teams can play in London if they feel like it. That's right. 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 That's right. But, yeah, but so, I mean, but we see—I mean, right now we've seen this last couple of years, a couple— football teams have moved back to LA and then they can move back and what have you. Mm-hmm. It's but in in baseball this is a no-no. It's right. a huge no-no. Okay. So we've got an added development the rules of the game yes. that, that you're kind of fixed. Very much so. Right? And so baseball has 
I think, you know, there's always been this big concern with baseball that essentially the Yankees are going to win the World Series every year. Mm, that you're going right. to have competitive imbalances and people are just going to go play at the they're, – they're just going to go play in the big markets, right? Right. And so how do competitive balance agreements, let's say, try and regulate – and let's start in general. How do how do these things tend to work across leagues, and how do they work in baseball? Right. Well, I mean, this, so this circles back to your to the collective bargaining agreement, which is right. the point that you were making initially, right? And so fans look at look at look at things like uh, competition. They look at the likelihood. Hey, is my team have a chance of winning it this mm-hmm. year? Those things well, are all established just, in this in this CBA. Right. But let's just talk about the mechanisms. Right. So let's say competitive balance is big. So, how do they how do they maintain it? So the so the mechanisms for baseball are things like the reverse order draft. Okay. okay? Um, the mechanisms in baseball so, are also amateur drafts. Amateur drafts. Yeah. The mechanism in baseball is also that if you grab let's say a free agent from some other player, mm-hmm. you give up what are called sandwich picks, which means those are sort of a draft between drafts. There's a First order draft, and then there's a second, and then a third, and then there's drafts between those drafts. So that let's say Bryce Harper goes to the Phillies. So what's going to happen is Phillies are going to give up their sandwich pick to the Nationals. So the Nationals will get a pick between the first and second round. So that's another way of of, okay. of, of inserting competitive balance here. Um, well, I tend to think of the big one with the baseball is using, and I think you know got to take a step back and go what? Well, maybe we should say what does baseball not use that other leagues do use? Baseball does not have a salary cap. There's okay. no salary cap in place, but they do have. Um, I think this is where you're going. They so, have, so, uh, well, so no salary cap and no max salaries as well. That's right. That's so right. Baseball has more of a free market than a lot of other sports, like the NFL. The NFL um, has a, a lot of revenue sharing. Very fixed cap. So I think revenue sharing, amateur drafts, salary caps. Right. So, but baseball doesn't have a salary cap. What they do have is they do have revenue sharing, quite substantial revenue sharing, and they also have what's called a luxury tax or a, a luxury tax threshold that kicks in at, you know, two hundred plus million dollars. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and um, I think one of the things that's happened recently is there's been some. Um, seems like there's been some movement of teams trying to get out from paying that luxury tax. Of course. I mean, once upon a time, that luxury tax was really just called a Yankees and Bo Sox tax because it was just the Yankees and the Red Sox who were paying this tax over and over again. Now this has been expanded to a larger number of teams. And with these with these um, deals, like so we just saw Bryce Harper signed to a what a three hundred million thirteen year deal. We, three hundred and thirty million for thirteen 30. years. And, <laughs> That's insane, right? And Manny Machando for three hundred million for. I mean, look, yeah, a thirteen year deal. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so this is going to twenty thirty two. Yeah, uh, he's I mean, twenty six years old. So he's going to be it, playing till he's. It's hard to yeah forty years it's hard old. Hard to right? project out that far. Yeah, it's impossible, right? And so, but those kind of those kind of <clears throat> deals that are in place. Um, they're going to push some teams into the well, competitive... It's, I think it's called a competitive balance tax or a competitive balance they, threshold tax. I mean, you know, is it is it any... Um, I mean, one of the... You know, it was really kind of viewed as a, I think I heard, glacially slow free agent market. And one guy signed with Philadelphia and the other one signed with the Padres. Yes, any that's right. Okay, so are we seeing something where the luxury tax is actually pushing people off hiring these kind of stars? I believe you're correct. And interestingly, you know, Philadelphia is a big market, but is the luxury tax 
potentially pushing, and this is nothing I've actually thought of till I'm saying it, is electric tax pushing stars into second tier markets? Yeah, I think it's. I think the stars, and I think this is one of the things that that the collective bargaining agreement is going to try to address going forward. Is that let's suppose you have a somebody who's been in the league for seven, eight, ten years, what have you, and now they've got they they're they're realizing that teams are up against this tax, so they're they're not signing things right away when and the market is a very very mismatch so if you're right now in the middle of spring training and you haven't signed with a team there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of urgency as a player from a player perspective to sign on and get that deal and get your get your contract locked in so you might be more incentivized to sign a a lower um a, a deal at a lower price tag or you might be incentivized to go to a team that you weren't really interested in it mm-hmm. anyway because maybe they've got some luxury tax space. Yeah. Okay, so now instead of salary tax, salary cap space, luxury tax space. I yeah, interesting. I think that's where that's going, yeah, right? And I, I think, think so. th- I mean, when you all you're doing is you're establishing sort of the um, what are the extra costs of holding something, right? And so when you have a salary cap, then everybody fits within the salary cap. Everybody knows what your maximum is, and then you move players. You don't sign them or you wait, say, okay, in two years we're going to have lots of cap space, so we're really going to work towards a championship then. Hmm. It's not the same kind of a thing that hit, hit, hits baseball teams. But for baseball teams now, they say, look, I don't want to pay this tax. For, you know, We don't we want to go over $220 million, so we're just not going to sign this guy. And the longer you wait to do that, um, I think the, the more pressure there is on the player to accept a lower uh, okay. wage deal, right? Okay. So impact on free agents and stardom. Potentially we see the collective bargaining agreement, the rules that are in place, while not directly impacting the salaries, indirectly impacting it by how the leagues are trying to avoid paying a tax. Yeah, absolutely. It's great for an economist, isn't it? It's terrific. And I think it's good for I mean I think it's good for a, a marketing professor like yourself when you're thinking about how it is that fans are aren't attracted to a team. Yeah. Well, the players on those teams, you know, have a big role in that and Let's switch to let's switch to the teams, yeah. okay? Because one of the other things that I think has started to happen in baseball, and usually I think I'm gonna, I'm going to use a word that I think most people go, "Oh, that's the NBA." Tanking. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Are baseball teams tanking now? No. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about the, what the process is for for, and that's a, that's a, that's a quote unquote term, right? The process. So, what's the process for well, baseball teams? Tanking in the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tanking in the process. These things may be moving together. But so last year, as a couple of fun stats, right? And you know, the baseball fans out there know that losing a hundred games is a big deal in Major League Baseball. So the Orioles lost 115 games. The Royals lost 104. Uh, the White Sox lost 100. And I think there were a couple other teams that lost over 100 games last year. So what's happening? Yeah, so are they are they doing that to free up space? Are they doing it to work their farm system? Maybe. I mean, what well, they're doing is they, you know, I mean, they, they I'll give bring you a, in a bunch of farm kids. And, let's let's talk know. some more of the details here, though, right? So um, the Royals were, um, they had a couple good years there, didn't they? They did. They won a championship in 2015. And now what have they done? 
they They've haven't s- won a championship okay. since okay. 2015. They'd sold off. I mean, that. So I mean, you know, my Cubs were uh, were a benefit of that. Ben Zobrist went over, and you know, he won back to back championships with the Royals, and then with the Cubs in 2016. And so the Royals, yeah. I think, got rid of. I mean, they sold, traded, you know, uh, let a number of their of their yeah. top quality players go. Well, and I think you know, Argu- from, arguably, but from, I mean, it's from talking to folks in the league. And I won't name names, but I think, you know, this has become part of the, there is sort of a process. It's not as direct as, or it's not as high publicity as the NBA, right? Where, oh, we can see, we can see who these guys are drafting, Mm -hmm. but a number of the organizations seem to have, I almost think of it like, almost like it's like, like a pulsing or a cyclical strategy Yes. of, Okay, we're not going to win it all, so let's scale back the payroll. Let's go from you know 120 or 150 million dollars. Let's go to 80 million dollars, right. and we'll sort of be bad for a while. We'll lose 108 games, build the minor league system, and then we'll grow our home homegrown stars, compete for a few years, and rinse and repeat. You've just described what the Houston Astros did successfully. You just described what the Chicago Cubs did successfully. You described maybe what, what the Braves what are the doing. The Braves. I was just gonna say okay. that. What's ex- I mean, we'll. I mean, we'll know in three or five years if the Braves have done it. Yeah. Maybe six years successfully. But there, I mean, there was a. And, and every small market team has got to be trying for that strategy too, right? I, or just about every one of them. I think that now they've seen that that strategy can can become successful. And so it's I think it's much more difficult to let's say buy a team right now and say okay we're going to go from 0 to 60 we just throw a couple hundred million into well, who salary. Who can who can buy a team? What what markets have the potential to buy a team, right? Boston and New York. Boston and New York, <laughs> LA and Chicago maybe? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and hey, that's not even that's not even totally fair, right? Is it even New York, Chicago, and L.A., or is it half of those markets? It's half of those markets, right? Very smart. Right? Okay, so I mean, we've got the Yankees, the Cubs, uh, the Dodgers. Uh, looks like the Angels have are trying a little bit, right? They brought in this, um, you know, they brought in this dual threat last year. He, you know, for a, a pretty penny, and. Um, and that, that that guy turned out to be pretty successful, and so you can do it. The I mean, the Dodgers have the Dodgers have had crazy payroll, and they've had I mean lots of success over the last seven years. Okay, I'm going to ask you a non-econ question yes, here. Okay, I'm going to give you uh, well, I'll give you four markets, four big markets. I'm going to write down what what I what I what you're going to say is the dominant team in each of those markets. Oh, uh oh, I think you're going okay. to get you're going to get four for four. I on think this I'm going to go four for four on this. <laughs> Uh, New York, the domin- dominant baseball team, in or the, just the dominant team, the dominant yeah. team, yeah, so in terms of fandom or right, whatever. So Yankees, clearly, Yankees. right? Okay. okay, one for one. All right, uh, Chicago, it's the Cubs, right? Two for two, right? L.A. I would, yeah, I would say Dodgers for sure. Okay, three for three. Yeah, uh, the Bay Area and California. Oh, Giants for okay. sure. Okay, four for four, and, and maybe I'll explore this question a little bit later in the podcast. But to me, that's an interesting thing. Has it been that way our whole lives? Tom and I are both in the neighborhood of about 50, I think. I'm a little over. He's a little under. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a, just a smidge. But um, um, has it been that way forever? Maybe. I can't remember a time when the Sox have ever been sort of a... Even when the Sox were winning a World Series or they got Frank Thomas. No, and, no. I mean, they still... people. That's one minute. That's or maybe one when the... the Mets had Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. Strawberry or, sure. or going totally old school when Fred Lynn and Jim Rice were on the cover of Sports Illustrated for the 
California, you know, again, am I getting this wrong or giving this right? Yeah. The, the memory is faded, but you know, like, so maybe there are brief moments, but there's something permanent, right? Right, right. Didn't the didn't the angel angels? When did the rally monkey? Didn't they have? <laughs> when did the rally monkey team? Didn't they win a championship? It was a really fun. That was I remember that World Series. But even then, they still didn't hold a they didn't hold a candle to the Dodgers. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be. Angels fans out here are going to you know, shoot you a, a nasty email. But, I mean, in terms of total number of fans and kind of crazy fandom, mm-hmm. I think the Dodgers are still you can top, have, top you can dog have, You can market. have upswings now and then, but it does seem like there's something something fixed. Is there something that you think the collective bargaining agreement can change to kind of change that uh, atmosphere, though? Do you think that that do you think that there's room in this to make it easier for let's say the second ranked team to compete fan to fan? One of the things that I think, and this is a great segue to where I'm going to go next, where we're going to go next in this episode, is you know so how does the collective bargaining agreement or even beyond this? So you know how do these things actually? So you you cast this, and I think correctly so, as controlling the sort of the Balancing the rights of the players and the organizations. I think so. Okay. Yeah. I suppose that you could also say, well, what about the rights or the expectations or the, I want to soften this language as I go, the desires or the preferences of the fans. Interesting. This conversation has identified a couple of things that, you know, so you you design something using, you know, economic principles, right? Mm-hmm. Labor econ, mechanism design to get something to work on the way. But you have marketing consequences. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about player movement. I think that impacts the stars that you're going to create. That impacts the league. And this last bit of conversation talking about tanking and sort of the way the the teams present themselves to the fans, not just in a given season, but over the course of several ser- several seasons, which, as a marketing guy, I want to use the term brand equity for that. Okay. Thank you very much, Tom. Like I said, you know, very happy, very glad that you could come in and sort of give me some solid econ background on the collective bargaining agreement. I love this stuff because I think it's actually, and I, I love this stuff, and I actually think it's where we should start when we're doing this kind of analysis of yeah. a fan base because the rules of the game are probably going to determine what you get out of the game. I agree with that 100%. And the only thing I'll add to this, and you know, because I know that you're going to go in that direction, is, is the current collective bargaining agreement is is established between, you know, two of the stakeholders, right? The franchises, the owners of the team, and the players, the people who are participating in this. The collective bargaining agreement tries, but it can never quite capture the other stakeholder, and that is the fans, because. There is, they don't have as much skin in the game in terms of they don't have to make the tough decisions. They, they aren't the one that are putting their, putting their bodies on the line to you know, try to crank out you know, 162 they don't games. They have the skin in the game either. They don't have – so I just wrote – I mean, like, look at this. I wrote this – I wrote that down. I mean, I'm just like skin in the game. This, this, they are a significant stakeholder that doesn't have real skin in the game. But when you listen to talk radio – they're all saying, hey, without me, you don't have a league. They pay the bills. They pay the bills. And so from their perspective, they are all the skin. They're yeah. like, if, it's, if not for us, right, the number of times I've heard people say, can I get an autograph? And someone says, eh, I'm sorry, not right now. They said, like, hey, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't even have a job. Well, I mean, they're not totally wrong, <laughs> right. right? So they, they have 
They are a stakeholder, but they don't have physical skin in the game, which mm -hmm. makes it impossible to write an agreement that would protect their best interests. I, I love the idea of there's this, this triangulation that has to happen, and it's almost impossible to do it. But I, I like I like where you're going with this, and I'm and I'm curious about the next steps. Perfect, Tom. Thank you. Thank sir. you very much. Okay, let's switch gears. So you know, the conversation with Tom has been about the collective bargaining agreement and really establishing the rules of the game or the rules with which the game operates in terms of its relationships with fans. Now I have Ada Chong joining me and we're going to talk about some of the current challenges Major League Baseball is facing right now. So in a way we're going to shift from thinking about the the fundamentals of how the league operates to the popular view, you know, what's in the media, what are people talking about in terms of Major League Baseball. Hi Ada, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good and happy to be here. Um, let's kick things off by talking about attendance. So attendance is down, but revenues are up. Why is that? Well, this is one of the things. It's, um, you know, Major League Baseball throughout the years has almost always felt like it's on, you know, some sort of crisis. Um, you know, we can go back 40, 50 years to the advent of free agency, through the steroid era, through strikes, um, labor st work stoppages, lockouts. But it's an interesting thing that Major League Baseball keeps setting record revenue numbers. I think it's uh, 16 years in a row with record revenues, which would suggest that the sport is doing pretty well. You can con contrast that with the fact that um, attendance has been down. I, I think, you know, I, I don't have the numbers directly in front of me, but I think the numbers were that maybe a slight three or four percent drop in attendance last year and i think if i've seen other 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 sources talking about that maybe attendance is off about 10 percent over the last decade so we've got kind of a mixed bag of results the the revenues are driven not just by attendance right revenues are also driven by tv deals sponsorships innovations in terms of you know different types of media that can be put out there so major league baseball is doing um you know, I think it's a. I've used the phrase, and it's a mixed bag. They've they've done some cool things to maintain and grow revenues, but there is a, at least a, a little bit of a warning signal that there might be some trouble ahead. The sports is about the fans, so if fans aren't going to the games as much, do you think the teams are doing enough to try to build their fan base? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good point, right? And so it, at the end of the day, the fans are the boss, or we can sort of debate that. The fans are, when I was talking to... Tom, he mentioned the fans as a third stakeholder. And so the fans are the ultimate source of revenue. And so it's the old marketing adage is the customer is king. Th this may be true, I think, and, th and this goes beyond baseball, that the idea of looking at things like gross attendance numbers might, might be something that is more of a, maybe this is how we looked at sports in the past. Maybe we need to update how we look at sports. And what I mean by that is that in the past, sports were just sort of part of the popular culture. You know, you you grew up in a city, you rooted for the baseball team, you rooted for the basketball team, you rooted for the football team. I suspect that as the media landscape has changed and as the political and the demographics of this country have changed, that maybe, you know, sports franchises can't be everything to all people. And so in the case of Major League Baseball, one way to look at this is, you know, maybe the, you know, maybe in a way they're, they're just ending up doing more of a, and they might be not be doing it intentionally, 
targeting a more lucrative set of customers. Maybe they're shrinking the, the total number of customers that come to the ballpark. And, and I think teams do not want to do that. They want to have as broad appeal as possible. But it is possible to, you know, focus and do a little bit better with some core group of customers. And, and so it's almost like a look at rather than the, the mass market, more of a segment level approach to it. So I've read that there's an issue with aging fans. And if that's the case, 10, 20 years from now, if those fans, you know, aren't here anymore, you think the younger fans are still going to be baseball fans. Good point. And this is one of the things that's always brought up with with baseball is that the fan is the stereotypical fan of Major League Baseball is a 55-year-old white guy from the suburbs. And so, yeah, I think if you just project from, like, your, your point is like, well, in 20 years, you guys will be, uh, you guys will not be going to games. I don't know. You know, it, it, it's one of those things where will Major League Baseball, you know, so if we even look at, like, maybe baseball is a game for older people. It's less fast-paced. It's less exciting, right? Well, as the current generation of, like, I'm, I'm 50, you're 29, so as the current generation of millennials ages, Will you guys start to move away from, let's say, the NBA being the favorite league for your demographic? Will you start to transition to Major League Baseball, right? Or is it sort of a permanent thing? I don't know. That, that, that's one kind of mystery. The one thing that I think is interesting about baseball, though, in terms of the demographics is that if you look at who goes to games, I think, and I, I've not actually seen data on this, but so this is anecdotal or observational that baseball has a lot more of a family presence. So, you know, there might be a lot of older people going to the game, but they're bringing their kids. And so in some ways, baseball does have a pipeline of younger fans. It's an open question of, you know, so do these younger fans sort of disappear in their teenage years, their 20-something? Are they going to come back? Yeah, it's right? a good point. I mean, you know, let, let's, I mean, if I think of the NBA versus Major League Baseball, I, I think, you know, coming back to this issue of segmentation, well, I mean, you've been to MLB and NBA games. What's the different kind of vibe at these places? Um, like you mentioned, baseball does seem a lot slower and it lasts it's like, like a four nice day hours. in the park, right? Yeah, it's a while. And basketball games, they move a lot quicker to me. And it seems like a younger crowd at the basketball games, just with the halftime show, the music they play. Um, it's just a different vibe. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, so, you know, everyone thinks they're going to stay young. As you age, well, not you, you're not, you're going to stay the same age, but um, <laughs> do people evolve into that different type of vibe or that different type of environment? You know, as people have kids, a lot of stuff. No one thinks it's going to happen to them, right? Consumers never think, oh, the minivan was for my parents. <laughs> so, so I mean, it, it, it's a mixed, it, it's something that, you know, predicting the future is hard, but we'll have to see what happens. Yeah. Now, baseball has some other challenges, right, that they may not have had in the past. When I think of the, the outdoor kind of Saturday afternoon game, you know, maybe baseball has more of a challenge coming from L MLS, the Major League Soccer, that they haven't experienced in the past. But I think there's a lot of uh, again, you will use this phrase over and over again, sort of a mixed bag. So some troubling indicators in terms of just the survey data on the demographics, but also some anecdotal stuff that suggests maybe it'll be okay. Well, it's interesting that we're talking about the attendance being down, but they still have good TV ratings. 
So why are people more willing, if they're not willing to watch it in person, why are they willing to watch it at home? I think the issue of TV and the issue of media with sports is something that everyone is struggling with. You know, the the NFL might, you know, folks in the NFL have always done great. You know, they, they don't play a lot of games, so that's easy for them to fill up their their arenas. But, you know, a lot of people prefer to watch NFL games on the big screen TV. The NBA, I think just in the last week or so uh, this spring, you know, has expressed some real concern with what are they going to do in terms of a revenue model as people get away from, I think they refer to it as linear TV at this point. Baseball as a game has never really been thought of as something that was built for TV. You know, baseball, from a historical perspective, almost seems like it was a game built for radio. Sitting, uh, you know, sitting in your house in the Midwest, hearing someone talk about the game. It's a relatively discreet, you know, it's a relatively simple game in terms of how to describe it. It's relatively discreet. The pitcher winds up, throws the ball, the batter swings and misses, right? So there's, there's two people in general interacting. And so this is, this is different than 22 players interacting on a football field or 10 players interacting on a basketball court. So, you know, I think there's some thinking that even as, you know, TV became so prevalent that this is where maybe baseball lost its place as the national pastime. So I I think at this point, you know, baseball may be benefiting um, in terms of TV viewership or be stable or let's say maybe losing less ground in the other leagues. This may be sort of a positive side of their demographics. You know, if the people watching baseball, interested in baseball, are a little bit older, well, these are the folks that are still watching TV. They're still um, subscribing to cable TV. Do you subscribe to cable TV? Yeah, absolutely. You do? Okay, Mm -hmm. do a lot of your um, cohort in terms of age? No, they stream. They stream, right? And and so, you know, my my folks, you know, in their, their 70s, they still get a morning newspaper, right? They still subscribe to cable TV. And so as the media environment changes, it's changing more rapidly, you know, depending on how young people are, essentially. And so baseball may have a little bit more stability in terms of things like TV revenues. That's interesting. Who are the best and worst fans in the MLB this year? Okay, so the backdrop to all of this conversation is that one of the things that I do on an annual basis in my role here at Emory University as the uh, director of the Marketing Analytics Center is a lot of quantitative research into sports, both on-field and off-field. One one big element of that is an annual look at fan bases, and I do this for all the major professional leagues. And so in conjunction with this podcast on um, on my Scholar blog, which you can find with a Google search of Emory Sports Marketing Analytics, you'll find current fan base rankings for, for an article dealing with some of the hot topics in MLB and some specific rankings of teams. Um, a little bit of background on that is that this is a very kind of marketing and economics and statistical oriented analysis. So this is not just kind of barroom fodder of, hey, who's the best fans? Is it the Cubs fans? Is it the Yankees fans? This is looking at actual data on spending patterns, on social media following, while, and this is sort of the major point of differentiating, while controlling for differences in team performance, so controlling for the fact that one team might be winning in a given year, 
uh, controlling for things like the population disparities across markets, controlling for differences in income. So control is a real kind of key point in all this. And this is where, again, this analytics comes back to it, a real stat- statistically oriented look at fandom. So who did you find were the best fans in the MLB this year? The results this year were actually very similar to what we've observed in in the past year. I think the top six ended up being unchanged from the uh, from the results published in 2018. So the top team in the league was the Red Sox, followed by the Yankees, Giants, Dodgers, Cubs, and uh, the St. Louis Cardinals. Cardinals. Okay, so the, the Cardinals. That might be the one that doesn't. Um, the one that might be a little bit different from the others. And so when we think of, well, the New York Yankees, the Chicago Cubs, the Los Angeles Dodgers, well, that's New York, that's Chicago, that's L.A. So these are the major market teams. The Red Sox and the Giants, also fairly major media markets. The Cardinals might be the one that seems a little bit strange, but the the Cardinals are a fascinating fan base in that they are, um, and, and again, you know, one of the things that whenever we talk about fandom, we almost always end up sitting get, very quickly getting beyond the numbers. The Cardinals story really is almost an accident of history. And so the the St. Louis Cardinals, even though we think of them as being in the Midwest, St. Louis was the southernmost Major League Baseball franchise for a long time, and their games were broadcast on a really high-powered uh, radio station. I think it was KMOX. And so the Cardinals had a bigger geographic fan uh, footprint than a lot of teams and they you know they were an effective organization they translated that into a lot of world series championships and along with that a lot of star players so you know i i, I want to say that the cardinals have the second most world championships after the yankees um and uh and like i said a real history of guys like ozzy Guillen. so they've done everything that it really takes to build a fan base and on top of it, they've got some of these, let's say, accidents of history where they've, you know, able to, let's say, swing above their weight. Yeah, it seems like all these top teams have generational fandom where their people's like grandfathers and their grandfathers have been fans for a while. So a new team, do you think they have a chance of ever being in this top five of best MLB fans? It's a good question because when we're talking about Chicago, the Chicago Cubs, right? You you grew up in Chicago, you're going to root for the Cubs. When we'll talk about the White Sox, maybe in a second here, you grow up in Boston, you're going to be a Red Sox fan. You go up in New York, you're going to be a a Yankee fan. Now, and I think these places, you know, while folks do move in and move out of these cities, you know, I, I think there's a core population in places like Chicago and Boston um, that has allowed for generational fandom to develop where in some places like let's say Atlanta or Miami or some of these other sort of sunbelt cities maybe there's less of that history if you you grow up without your um, parents and grandparents rooting for a team it's a little bit less likely that you're going to hook on especially if the team isn't winning and become a fan yeah so let's go into the losers of these groups then who did you have as the worst fans this year? Oh, and this is always the fun part. Um, well, this is always the part that that causes the most dramatic reaction. So on the on the bottom five, we had the Rays, the Athletics, the A's, the Indians, the White Sox, and the Marlins. So a couple of Florida teams in there, a couple of teams that sort of exist in parallel to a couple of the winners, right? 
DAs on, are on the other side of the San Francisco Bay relative to the Giants, the White Sox on the south side of the city relative to, to the Cubs. And the Indians, well, that's, a, that's another interesting story from a marketing perspective. So why was one team, the Cubs, able to be on the best fans and then the White Sox on the worst fans and they're both in the same area? Okay. Well, and, and so it's an interesting thing in terms of what we do in these analyses is we crunch the numbers and we see who's coming out ahead. Then when we take, want to take a step back and we want to say, well, why do we get the results? Then I think we got to use a mixture of, well, we can do some further analysis. You know, we look at well, how many World Series has the team won or how many Hall of Famers have they produced, had on the roster. That probably gets us a, a big part of the way to explaining it, but probably doesn't do everything. And so, you know, the, the White Sox versus the Cubs, you know, the Chicago Cubs historically have played on WGN TV. They played during the day, so it was really set up for like every kid in the Chicagoland area to actually be able to watch Cubs games while the, the White Sox were on one of these kind of, like it, was, it was like Channel 32 or Channel 44, one of these things which before cable TV was relatively difficult to get clear reception on. The Cubs are located on the north side of the city in an area of the city that's very appealing for foot traffic. People like to live by that stadium. People love the bars in that area. So a bunch of things come into play that give the Cubs some natural advantages. And I think there's a feedback effect that when the Cubs are sort of the Chicago's team, well, then, you know, everyone else that's sort of new jumping in, well, they want to be part of the winner. They want to be part of the leader. And so I think this is why we see across almost all of these markets, you know, we see one dominant team, the Cubs, the Yankees, the Dodgers, and we see one team that tends to struggle, the Angels, the Mets, you know, um, the, the White Sox, and to some extent, like the athletics relative to the Giants as well. So cities with two teams, do you think it would make sense for them to just eliminate the second team and so that they can build a bigger fan base and get those fans from the second team? It's a good question. You know, I mean, so it's relatively limited, right? The number of cities with two teams or the number of major markets with two teams is, is, is a small subset. It's New York, it's L.A., it's Chicago, and maybe it's, maybe it's the Bay Area, depending on how you want to define that. The question becomes, let's say, so for a Chicago White Sox, is there another market where they could do better than being the second team in Chicago? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. I suspect it's kind of challenging, right? So it's like, well, where would they go? Memphis? You know, Portland? You know, it's, it's a potential question. It's something that we haven't seen. We haven't seen a lot of movement towards, you know, we haven't seen any movement out of major markets to different geographies. Now, if we go back long enough historically we actually do see some of that so where, where did uh, where did the Giants come from before they were in San Francisco they were one of the New York teams where did the Dodgers come from they were the Brooklyn Dodgers so we have seen some of that historically is there still opportunities well you know as the population shifts as people move to different markets it's probably an interesting thing for some of these uh, for some of these teams to actually contemplate yeah is there anything else you want to add well, I'll just say this. I mean, you know, so doing this in the podcast format, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give folks a taste. Please, you know, take a look at the uh, at the full article on the website. There's a lot of detail in there. So, you know, we've given you some high points in terms of the winners and sort of the losers in terms of major league, you know, this kind of quick quantitative look at, at the fan bases. I actually look at the analysis in terms of multiple measures, so things related to attendance, uh, spending, 
social media, road attendance. So the goal is really to give a very complete picture of the state of the league. The, the point to today is to give a snapshot as we go into the Major League Baseball season in terms of the state of the league's relationship with its fans, both overall and on a team-by-team basis. I really hope that you guys are enjoying the podcast out here. And, and in particular, you know, th- this episode is a little bit different than a lot of the other episodes we've done in terms of a little bit more detail, a little bit more of a deep dive into a specific topic. Um, it did an earlier uh, episode on the Super Bowl where we, where Ada and I talked about how the Super Bowl essentially went from being a one-off championship game to a major marketing and entertainment event. And so as we move forward in the podcast, we've been doing this for just short of a year. Uh, for those of you that are, you know, we value everyone that, you know, gives us a listen, we're going to try and move more to this deeper dive format. So over the last year, we've been trying to do an episode every couple of weeks. We're now going to move to more of one longer form episode. Like I said, deeper dive, more educational content, more history, a little bit more in analytics. And we're going to shoot for one episode a month with some occasional fill-in episodes. So when something when something's interesting or hot, We'll still turn on the microphones and maybe bring someone in and uh, and talk through that issue. Yeah, we would love to hear if you have any topics you want us to discuss. You can email us at gbs.mac, M-A-C, at emory.edu. And we would love for you to rate and subscribe us on iTunes. Okay. Thanks, Ada. And thanks to everyone out there.